listeners, Alex here, assistant producer for the Sausage of Science podcast. Before we begin, a quick note of warning. This week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. set of guests today we do have a really awesome set of guests uh the person in our waiting room now uh joe graves the time i met him in person was the day after donald trump was elected i remember, I remember you telling me about those conversations you had with him so basically he was the first person i talked to after the election of trump who was not surprised and you'll probably find out in a second why dear listeners so, but we don't just have Dr. Joe Graves on today. We also have Dr. Alan Goodman, who is returning to he our show. Re- he is returning. He was kind enough to come on with with Tom Leatherman. Yeah, they're, they're the authors of the for biocultural moment, like, synthesis. I didn't know what you were stuck on for a moment. Like, what is he trying to think of? <laughs> I'm having basic, like, what's my name today? Brain issues. I sat there in my lab this morning trying to remember my own password and login. I'm just like. Could someone tell me? We have Alan Goodman back, and we did replay an episode with Joe Graves that was on Speaking of Race. So, yes. Yep. Listeners have heard him before, just not us interviewing him in this context. So, Joe Graves and Alan Goodman, and they have both been working on the problems of the race concept for many, many years independently. Alan was basically one of the main people to do the AAA race. Races and Social Construction exhibit for the American Anthropological Association. He's been involved in that for many years. Joe has a couple books, including The Emperor's New Clothes, I believe, which is about racist social construction, which I've used in class. And now they have a brand new book, which is taking a question and answer format. Yeah, I love, I love, love, love the setup of this book. When I opened up the table of contents at first, I was like, wow. That is a lot of words for a table of contents. And then I realized what they had done and what they were doing with it. I'm like, oh, that's just brilliant. It It makes for a wonderful teaching tool. It's like having a uh, farmer's almanac or something. It's just like, oh. A farmer's almanac of race and racism. (laughs) Yeah, like, like, oh, why do they want to know my race if they're going to give me this pill? Is there something associated? And there's there's a section for it, right? Like, I have a niece who is mixed. How does she determine what race she chooses? You know, there's a whole section on that and mm-hmm. some of the state laws and which laws would push you into which category at which time in history. So, And then that has real complications for medical care down the line. I've heard some insane stories about that. So, yeah, they have been patiently waiting in our room. So perhaps we should admit them and bring them on. Hey, Joe. Hey. Joe, is Alan. that a University of Michigan MIC? Oh, well, there he is. Of course it is. What's your association with Michigan? I did my graduate work there. I was an undergrad at Michigan. There's always a Michigan connection, which I throw in Chris's face. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, you know, I was there a whole lot earlier than you were. That's okay. It's still Michigan and it's still... I know, I get it. I get it. And and, And I played for Michigan. Unlike most people who wear Michigan paraphernalia, I actually lined up for the Wolverines. That is, that is a thing. That is a real thing at Michigan. I played volleyball. I played volleyball. (laughs) 
I was going to ask you if you were hurting after the slaughter by Georgia the other day, but I guess not. <laughs> no, I am. I, I, I mean, was, I you was, hurt. <laughs> I definitely hurt, but you know what made me feel better? That they did the same thing to Alabama. Yeah. 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 It made me feel better. Yeah, Alabama and Georgia, they, you know, they could be pro teams. Yeah. That know. would be fun. I think that should actually happen. There needs to be an exhibition game. I, I think they would definitely beat the Jaguars. <laughs> no, not even the Jaguars. We have, I every want year to say, I'm feeling really left really? out, but oh, Kansas Alex, College's sorry. football team has been undefeated for 52 years. So I will say, as much as we're doing the sports talk, it is related because the new book that you two have out, which is called Racism Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions, has a whole section on athletics and athletics and racism and all of these ideas that a lot of people still hold that there are these like natural performance benefits for some races over others. And so it does yeah. relate. Link of course made. it relates. Link yeah. <laughs> so we have been fortunate enough to have Alan on the show previously with Tom Leatherman when we were talking about the biocultural synthesis. But Joe, you are technically new to the sausage of science. And we always start out the show. Oh, I love sausage. I love right? sausage. We also love sausage. Doctor tells me I can't eat it anymore, but I love oh, no. it. We also love smoking meats. So like, you know, friendly crowd. Uh, yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah. But we start every show the same, which is to ask about the person we're interviewing and kind of their journey, how they got to where they are. So since we have heard Alan's, uh, Alan, I'm sorry, you're going to feel left out <laughs> from both the sports. And now we're going to focus on Joe's origin story, a little bit of how you came to evolutionary biology and then how you started incorporating studies of race and racism. Well, you know, the story of how I came to evolutionary biology will be featured in my next book, A Voice in the Wilderness. A pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems, which will be published by Basic Books in the fall of 2022. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But, you know, the, the long and short of it is I never intended to go into evolutionary biology. I never intended to work on issues of race. It turns out that in my case, I had no choice. You know, it's sort of like the... Uh, mm. I don't know if you've seen the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. So you remember the scene when Judas is being chased by the tank? That, that, that's exactly what happened to me with regard to going into evolutionary biology and, and addressing the issues of race. I had no choice. It's absolutely no choice. Being the first African-American to ever get a degree in evolutionary biology and facing institutional and personal racism almost on a daily basis. I mean, during his degree, I thought my middle name was nigger because I was called it so much. Had doors slammed in my face because people didn't think I should be in a science building after hours. So there was absolutely no choice for me to work on this question. It's fascinating and sort of poetic justice that we're talking now uh, about this book. I don't know if you remember, Joe, when, when you were here at Alabama, I, I hosted you. I could day. never forget being in Alabama, believe me. Remember? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was the day after Trump's election. You were the first person I encountered after that election who was not surprised for the very reason you just mentioned. So that stuck with me. And now here you guys are on the backside of that with a book that starts off with where we are now versus where we were then. So, you know, it's it's in here. But let's just start with why do you see the need to write this book right now, given that you've both been doing this work, as you mentioned in the introduction, combined, the two of you have been teaching about the race concept and social justice for, well, I think you said 100 years combined? 
It may have been 50 years, years. but it's a, a <laughs> lot of years. Joe just said he was super old, so I think I added a couple. Yeah. yeah I am super old. I don't think well, it's quite 100. We'll go with combined 50 years. So given the work that you have both already done on this, what was the inspiration to do another book? Well, I would say that the work isn't done. I mean, it, it's entirely incomplete. And as much as we've tried, as much as our ancestor spirits have tried, um, you know, I would go back to Frederick Douglass all the way into the 1800s. Uh, race is still in the air. It's still the smog we breathe. And especially the myth about biology is foundational still. And, you know, so... Joe's done work on this and trying to poll publics about how they think about race and racism. Well, you know, most individuals in the United States um, don't believe in evolution. And clearly, most individuals in the United States think, you know, some version of God created the separate races or they separately evolved. And so all of these incredibly hurtful, imprecise myths of race continue to circulate. So our book was an effort to try to say it as simply as possible, to break it down question by question. And I hope it helps, but I don't see it as the end. Yeah, we really love the format of this book. When we got the book and we saw the way it was laid out, we were like, oh yeah, yeah, this is this is exactly what we need. I, I just called it a farmer's almanac for race as a social <laughs> construction, because any question that we now have, we can go like, Okay, we're going to the doctor, and they said, because you're African-American, this, that, or the other. Like, is that real? And you've got a section on it. Yeah, so how did you narrow things down? So kind of when you two were discussing putting this book together, what main topics did you come up with, or how did you choose the main topics? And then how did you decide on what questions to focus on? Again, that experience that Alan and I have had and shared over the years we know what the big questions are because the people ask them to us all the time when we teach our classes, in our churches, in our social clubs. I mean, everywhere you go, people, as Alan said, are breathing in this smog. And it's quite toxic smog, by the way. And so we have a very good sense of what the common misconceptions are. And so we went head on to answer them in a systematic way. And so... What made you decide on this Socratic method of writing this book versus almost more of a narrative form? As Joe said, we are approached with lots of questions. One of the books I'll, I'll have to say uh, with a bit of embarrassment that influenced me was a book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Was Afraid to Ask. And we originally even thought about a title, Everything You Wanted to Know About Race, Racism, and Human Variation. I'm really glad we settled on the title Racism Not Race because that's sort of the fundamental message, if there is one message about the book, is that what we often attribute to inherent biological differences, say in differences in athletic ability, definitely differences in health is usually due to differences in lived experience. And you know, part of that lived experience is various forms of racism. Yeah, so I think the question and answer book idea is something that had never been tried before. I think that was a missed opportunity. When Joe and I first discussed it, we immediately said yes to each other. 
That's what we want to do. And so there was no doubt about it. I had that idea in my mind. Joe had even, I believe, started writing a book like that. And so we you know, immediately decided to combine our efforts. I'll also say teaching at Hampshire College, part of what we do is teach by Socratic method. And that, you know, I have a older colleague who would simply come into class and say, what questions do you have for me? And he would organize them by topic and or by general themes and things of that sort. And that would be how the class would go for the day. So that's in a way, what we did with the book. And I think it was kind of organic going back and forth between these are important individual questions and they just kind of began to lump themselves together into logical themes or chapters. Karen and I both read several books on this, right? Most recently, How to Argue with a Racist by Adam Rutherford is one I read. Mm -hmm. And so I, I often come at these things thinking, why do we need another one? And partly because I have read a bunch, but I know not everybody has, but Immediately when I picked this up, chapter one, did the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans have a concept of race? I'm immediately intrigued. I want to go there and find that out. Or if we look to chapter two, how does the total and apportioned human variation compare with the variation among gorillas and other mammals? Now, maybe not everybody would be as fascinated by that as I am, but I love like looking at the primates. And if we use the race concept and applied it to them, that's just such a profound comparison that I make in my classes every semester. So I think this is a really exciting approach. Like a choose your own adventure. I'm happy you guys like it and we do too. And we think that it's a book that you, you know, traditionally could read from start to finish, but I hope it's also a manual. And one reviewer said something to the effect of, this is the book that I want when somebody asks me some common question about racial differences that I can look and see, okay, there's a question about athletic differences, or there's a question about cystic fibrosis or some disease or something of that sort, and they can dip in and get a quick answer. Speaking of reviews, I have a bit of a throwaway question, but I'm deeply curious. On the back dust jacket, you have a quote from Ken Burns. How in the world does somebody get a dust jacket quote from Ken Burns? Please give us the story. I'm going to jump in because I think mostly I'm the insider there. <laughs> Although Joe has appeared in at least one video that, you know, one documentary that Ken has done. So Ken was familiar with Joe, but Ken Burns is a Hampshire College graduate. And, you know, left a decade before me, but I was vice president and I've been there for over 30 years. So we've had a number of times where our paths have crossed. And Ken's interest, if I can say at this moment, is really around race and racism. He's, you know, approaching maybe the end of his career, though he looked great. So we decided to approach him. He wanted a copy of the book. He's really interested in the subject. I'll do a brief shout out to an intermediary, Artemis Joukowsky, who did a film with Ken called The Sharps War about rescuing Jews during the Holocaust. And through my direct contact and through Artemis, we were able to get what I think is a lovely little quote from Ken, which also harks back to the Socratic method, mm -hmm. which he learned as well at Hampshire. So things kind of came around. 
I was going to say, if Ken is listening to this podcast or ever listens to this podcast, hey, Ken, it's time for Ken Burns Presents Racism Not Race. And, and I'm not joking about that because probably the best documentary that's still out there is Race, Power, and an Illusion, which both uh, Alan and I appeared in. But, you know, it's woefully out of date. And there's really a need. And given the status of racial politics in America right now, there's really a need for a big time documentary to help people, you know, get their minds right about what I think is the central issue structuring American social life right now. Yeah. And if I can say, you know, if I had an ulterior motive, I mean, the motive was enough to get his name on the book jacket. But I could imagine the Ken Burns. 10 part series that he's done on baseball and jazz and the Civil War. Imagine a 10 hours on the history of the idea of race, you know, kind of. Which would know, also include of, every other documentary, honestly, that he's done because yeah. it yeah. all wraps up in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the history piece, I was just kind of joking about the age thing, but you are of an age to have parents who served in World War II, right? Both of you mentioned this experience, and Joe, your father having served in World War II when he came back was, again, treated like a second-class citizen, and Alan, you said your father was a refrigeration technician in a largely Catholic community, and you're Jewish, and so you got to see all the sort of tensions in different groups. And what this is leading up to is the distinctions that we make in seeing differences around us that are due to our heritage and our ethnicity, and not necessarily like race isn't real, so it's it's not race. We have gone from, in some ways, using race as though it were real to now when we're trying to maneuver in in space and be respectful of people, right? The word most people use is politically correct. When we're trying to be respectful of people, people now are maneuvering around these words so much they're not acknowledging that we do see skin pigmentation differences. We do see cultural differences. So how do we distinguish between ethnicity and race or heritage when we're having these conversations with our students and make it okay to see difference without adding anything else onto it. I mean, honestly, I think that's what you said, Christopher. I mean, the important thing is to recognize that human beings have different physical traits, but that those physical traits and, you know, genetic ancestries don't allow you to apportion people into biological races and that these physical traits and cultural attributes themselves can't readily be determined by knowing someone's physical appearance. You, you can't determine someone's personality. You can't determine their morality. You can't determine their intellect. And that's the association that we hope to break in Racism Not Race, where people see a physical appearance and then they make all sorts of assumptions about who that person is and what they're about. Yeah, I want to add two parts to that. One is that people who don't read our book but think they know our book or our stance will say, oh, you know, they're just denying variation. And as an anthropologist, as Joe, as an evolutionary biologist, not at all. Variation exists. We say this in the book. It's real. It's wonderful. It's literally the spice of life. It's what makes evolution work, you know, but humans don't have races. They don't have racial variation. We do have some regional variation, but we don't have racial 
variation. So I just want to really be clear for the audience that variation exists. It's just when we look at skin color, we think we understand it. Now, you also asked about the difference between ethnicity and race. And I think there's a pretty simple way to think about it is that we tend not to think about ethnicity as something that inherent, natural, God-given, deep, primordial, or later based on biology or genes. However, the race concept is all of those things. It seem to be deep, primordial, based on biology, based on genetics. So that old race concept of biological race, we simply don't have. And that's a harmful concept. So you talk about this and you take folks through kind of this History, which is murky, because obviously we all have to rely on the record of what's there, of when racial thinking may or may not have come about. And you talk about people have often used in-group, out-group, and you talked about anyone who's not Roman is a barbarian, but they can actually adopt, you know, the Roman lifestyle and, you know, make their way up in quote-unquote hierarchy. And I can imagine to some people, like a layperson who doesn't really fully understand the breadth of variation and what the actual links are between genetics and phenotype, and then add on top of that the human desire to morally quantify that and apply meaning and value to those kinds of things. And I can see a layperson saying like, well, there were still in-groups, out-groups, that's clearly race, so how is that different than what we do now? You can see how that might be a fuzzier distinction for some folks, so what do you say? Well, the thing is that in-groups and out-groups can be and have been defined in various ways. And there's also some really eloquent evolutionary psychology experiments that have been done to show that you can change a person's perception of in-group and out-group within a few hours, depending upon how you condition them. And so the notion that race has to be an out-group, and let's go back to what Christopher was talking about. You know, I had learned that my father landed on Utah Beach under fire until I was at his funeral. And my uncle was sitting next to me and he told me the story of how his commanding officer came to him the night before the Normandy invasion. You know, James, do you have a brother Joe in the 552? And he said, James said, yeah, my brother Joe's in the 552. And his commanding officer who was white, looked at him and said, James, you should go spend some time with your brother tonight. And so the next morning, my father was in a landing craft approaching a beach. And I can guarantee you, when they were being raked by machine gun fire and artillery, that nobody cared what color skin you were on that beach. It was a question of getting off the beach alive. And if you had to pull somebody out of the way or they pulled you out of the way, you weren't thinking about their skin. And in fact, there is a story um, that you can see. I, I think on Ken Burns' The War, which talks about, you know, an African-American medic who was wounded several times on Omaha and kept dragging white soldiers to safety. So, again, you know, in-group, out-group changes on context. And what we've done in the United States is we've reified in-group, out-group as race by consistently rewarding racist behavior. So your book brings us to now, right? And as we wrestle with our current new political dynamic, right, in terms of Biden being president now. So here's the question. You state early on that there are beneficiaries to racism, that those beneficiaries will work to maintain a baseless human hierarchy. 
and that the early stakes for maintaining this hierarchy were high at the time of European colonialism. We're supposedly anti-colonial now. What are the current stakes that are reinforcing the hierarchy and maintaining racism? I would say that it's been a bill of goods that's been sold to most white-skinned individuals. And it is just that. It's a bill of goods to sort of hang on to one's whiteness as some way to think about having some degree of superiority over individuals of color. And there are differences, undeniable differences in infant mortality, maternal mortality, wealth, incarceration rates, you know, that whites don't get pulled over by cops like people of color do. Whites don't die prematurely of COVID, et cetera, as whites do. But the thing is, white life expectancy, for example, is decreasing in the United States. Deaths of despair, things like suicide, drug overdoses are high in middle and lower class white communities. Lack of health care is high. This is not a zero sum game that we live in. You know, we are all in this together. The first, you know, refugees from climate crises are communities of color, but climate crisis, global warming is going to come for all of us. And so this book is aimed for anybody. It's aimed for that audience, not individuals of color who live race and racism, but the other 80 plus 80 odd percent or whatever we are in this country of white folk who think that there's something to hide behind in their whiteness. There isn't. Yeah. And just to, to make a point to support what Alan's saying, you know, we visioned this book really as a book for persons who wanted to make a difference with regard to racial relations in their community. And we knew that a lot of those people would be persons of European descent. In fact, we hoped that a lot of those people would be persons of European descent. And the things that Alan was talking about, you know, in many ways, racially subordinated people have been canaries in the coal mine. And that all these bad things, you know, tended to happen to us first. But, for example, COVID. COVID first impacted black and brown communities differentially. But now the people who are ending up in the emergency room are predominantly persons of European descent who voted for Donald Trump and who don't believe that COVID is real. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by taking these false racial narratives off the table, our hope is to get people to recognize what their real enemy is. And the real enemy is a social system that thinks that they're disposable. So they'd rather have robots delivering pizza in Houston now. Mm. Well, what's that going to do for all the people who are making you know, ends meet in a gig economy delivering Domino's pizza? But robots are cheaper. And so now those people are going to be out of work. So unless we you know, take away this false narrative, this dividing line, which has been used by those who have real economic and political power in this country to keep everybody down, they're going to continue to get away with it. As a follow-up, Ben, as a fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates, I was skimming through to see if you guys discuss reparations or anything like that. I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. He's written, he's advocated for, you know, it's hundreds of years later, but we still have a lack of wealth in African-American communities and wealth defined by having networks of support. So when shit goes wrong, you don't fall through the cracks. Would reparations now improve conditions 
for people and make an impact. What do you think? I'm going to say that I'm not a fan of reparations as a political strategy. Okay, And so it's not that persons of African descent don't deserve payment for unpaid labor and for underpaid labor and for, you know, all of the stress and trauma that we've been put through in the United States. That's not what I'm saying. I want to organize around a political strategy, I think, that can win Mm. to stop the injustice that's being carried out against African-Americans and also the white working class. Mm. So that's why I'm not a fan of reparation. What I'm a fan of is things like Build Back Better, but we actually needed to pass that. Yeah. In other words, we needed, we needed to pass a massive program that put people back to work, that provided child care for working mothers, that produced infrastructure that helped poor people. Okay, that's what we needed to be doing. And that, I think, would have made much greater progress towards, one, helping people identify what the real problem is in this country, and also unifying people around things that everybody can agree on. I'm with Joe on that. I mean, I'm not so sure about reparations or some form of universal basic income, but where I think Joe and I really agree, and we wrote a chapter about steps that can be taken, is that we have not invested in human capital. You know, and brief story that you may or may not be familiar with is one of the first books that preached about intellectual inequalities by race, you know, actually not a book, but a long hundred plus page article was by Arthur Jensen on the Harvard Educational Review. And I think his very first line was compulsory education has tried and it has failed. Well, what he had done is he showed that a year or two of Head Start, you know, this little bit of summer enrichment, increased IQ, but then it kind of began to dissipate through time. Well, that doesn't tell me that it failed. That told me that the efforts weren't systemic enough and good enough to really have a lasting effect. And so that's what we need. And, you know, we don't need to do it in a way that, again, is seen as, well, it's uh, something that individuals with certain skin color getting and others aren't. I mean, we really need to reduce overall income inequality in this country. And that definitely includes the black-white gap, but it also includes the white-white gap. You're reaching out to, you said, people European background who might have questions like this. So I want to pose one based on one of your chapter titles. So my kids are white. They went to a high school that was probably 95% African-American, and their friends would always tell them, oh, you know, you get a pass. You can use the N-word, right? And you have, in chapter three, is using the N-word racist? Is it racist if I'm white? Is it racist if I am black? I hear this conversation in my household constantly because the N-word is in hip-hop, right? So it's like, my kids won't even sing it if it's in a song they're singing, but other white kids will, and they cringe. And I'm curious as to what you would recommend to a parent if they had this question or a student in your class, like, I got the pass. Can I use it? What do you say? Well, I, I think the, the N-word, you know, suffers from the genesis of the word. In other words, people might claim that, yeah, you know, hip-hop is, you know, reclaimed and recast the meaning of the N-word, but I, I think that fails. I think hip-hop using that word is part of the self-hatred that has developed amongst African-Americans due to racial oppression. And so I don't use it. 
I don't support people who use it. I don't listen to music that utilizes it precisely because I think it is an example of how we have created hatred for ourselves. And so I think not to mention the misogyny, which is also so deeply intertwined with the use of the N-word in hip-hop. So the two are, again, examples of self-hatred and oppression, you know, which, by the way, I'm sure you know that there's a disproportionate listening of hip-hop by kids of European descent. And so the industry has made all sorts of money and spectacularism as a result of this cultural appropriation. So at the end of the day, I don't use the word. My kids don't use the word. My family doesn't use the word, okay, because we think that it's an example of African-Americans hating themselves. It's a really interesting perspective, and I also did not know that about hip-hop and who actually consumes it. I am not a music connoisseur, so I know very little about music. Yes, <laughs> listeners, if they're interested more, there's a great podcast I think it's louder than a bomb where they're really going digging deep favorite the subject. Uh, so what's next for you two? Are there any future collaborations? Uh, Joe, you mentioned you have a, another book coming out and Alan, I'm not sure what you have on your plate, but what's coming up for you two? Well, I told Alan that, uh, you know, I actually I've written three books in the last 15 months. And, and the reason is because when the COVID pandemic started, I didn't think I'd see the other side of it alive. And so I was writing things that I thought were going to be my legacy. Hmm. And I'm still not sure that I'm going to see the end of the COVID pandemic alive. Fair enough. Joe, you you sure as hell better. Yeah, right. I'll come down and kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you, Alan. You know, I do. And a lot of the reason why I have made it this far is because of support from my friends like you. Appreciate it. I'm looking forward to Joe's book. And, you know, for me, you know, this is a important step, but I'm hoping to get the American Anthropological Association's website up and going. I'm begun working with UNESCO, which historically has been really important in race and racism. And they've got a new initiative and in looking at racism. So I'm trying to support that and make it as scientific as possible. And, you know, just to say, I think all of this stuff is not sufficient to get to a better world, a more just world, but it's necessary. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Thank you for sending us a copy of the book, Racism Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions on Columbia University Press. I highly recommend it for our listeners out there. And you guys have a pleasure, and I'm so glad you're doing this podcast and keep putting that sausage together. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank go blue. Both. Go blue! <laughs>